Amen. He's, he is marvelous. That seems like a, that's one of those words that you pretty much only use in church, right? I, I mean, not much marvel going out. Well, there's a lot of marvel, but not a lot of marvelous things. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. Um, we have a, a special guest this morning. Yep, not Captain Marvel. Don't worry. It's not the marvels. I know you don't want to come out, but you have to come out. Yes, the people want to see who you are. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. We have a, a really special guest this morning. This is um, Barry Sanders. If you're a, a football fan, you'll know that reference. But uh, Barry has been with us for a, a long time uh, in our family. Uh, he has lived in my daughter's room for, for many years. Uh, and recently, he just signed uh, his, his letter of intent to play football at University of Georgia uh, he's really excited about it. Um, he's got about a million dollars of NIL deals coming in. It's really exciting for us as a family because, that, you know, money is money. And, but, you know, he's got his Instagram, and um, he's, he creates TikTok here. Yeah, you do that during the thing. So um, just, I know, I know. We'll, get, we'll talk later. Okay. Anyway, just ignore him for now. We'll, we'll, we'll go back to him. Don't worry. Uh, grab your Bibles with me as we are continuing in our passage, I mean, in our study of the parables of Jesus in Matthew. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Um, in case you don't know, I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be in verse 28 to start. Um, but this parable requires some setup. This is not a, a parable that you can understand in a vacuum. Um, so just backing up, even if we just start in... In the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus has come in here uh, to Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. Uh, he gets on a donkey, he rides through town, people are praising him, waving palm fronds, it's exciting. Um, we'll probably talk more about the triumphal entry here in a couple weeks as we near Easter. Um, shortly after that, in the chronology of Matthew, we see that Jesus goes into the temple and he finds when he goes into the temple, people buying and selling things, and he clears it out, the famous Jesus is mad passage, and he's kicking over tables and, and all of the things that we've seen a hundred times and talked about. And then after he cleanses the temple, um, he goes in and he, he's walking and he sees this fig tree on the side of the road that is, uh, he's hungry and he wants some figs, and he goes to the fig tree and there's no figs on it. And so he curses the fig tree. Because it's barren, it's not producing fruit. And then he walks into the temple courts in verse 23. He enters the temple courts, and the chief priests and the elders of the people, they come to him while he's teaching, and they decide that they want to try to trick him up and ask him about his authority and where he has this authority for all that he's speaking. And that is what sets the stage for this parable that we're going to go into. So Jesus has had his triumphal entry, he's cleansed the temple, he's cursed the fig tree, he walked into the temple, and the religious authorities of the day have challenged him on his authority, and he has basically put them on their heads and shown that he is actually much, much wiser, smarter than, than they are. And it sets up this parable. So in verse 28, we'll read this, um, this passage here, then we'll break it down together. Verse 28 says, what do you think? This is Jesus speaking. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. 
which of the two did his father's will? They said, that's the religious leader, said the first, of course. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds and believed him. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting parable because, it, I mean, I love any time Jesus gets to kick the religious authorities of the day in the teeth. I mean, it's just awesome to see because th- these are these puffed up, pious people who come to Jesus. And Jesus, in his loving, kind, gentle way, turns, turns it on his head every time. They think they've got him in a corner. And every time he turns it around and, and teaches them a lesson. And what we see is he's not just teaching them a lesson, but he's teaching all of us a lesson as he does this. So, going back to the beginning of this passage in, in verse 28, it sets the stage by saying, a man had two sons, and he had a vineyard. And he asked them to go work in the vineyard. So, where Jesus uses these agricultural terms a lot. The vineyard specifically is something that Jesus uses throughout his teaching, and it's something that... Um, it may seem silly to us. In Florida, we have vineyards. Vineyards. You see, like the wine, the wineries, and you're like, "Oh, so that's not really. That's like muscadine or something, right? It's not real grapes." But if you go out to California in the Napa Valley and you drive around, you see these beautiful vineyards. They require an enormous amount of work to keep up, and they require a lot of uh, very specific skilled labor to be able to go out and pick these grapes. It's not just like you can't, you can't run your rototiller through there and get everything out that you need. You have to be skilled. You have to know what the grapes are doing, when to pick them, when the right time is. So it's, it's a skilled labor. He goes to his sons and he says, hey, I want you to go work in the vineyard. When the religious leaders of the day heard this and Jesus was using the language of the vineyard, these guys knew their stuff, Right? If you're, if you're part of the Sanhedrin, you're part of the religious leadership of the day in the Jewish Hebrew church, you would understand that the vineyard has much more significance than just a field. This is not just like, hey, son, go mow the lawn. That's not, that's not what he's referencing. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 5, um, we're not going to put it up because I'm just going to read it to you. There's this beautiful passage that Isaiah uh, is given from the Lord. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 5, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Verse uh, 5.2 says, he broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. So when Jesus sets the stage for these religious leaders with the the, the image of the vineyard, he's referencing back all the way back to Isaiah chapter 5. When God said to the people of Israel, I planted this vineyard, which is you, the people of Israel. And when I did that, I expected to see righteousness, goodness, mercy, all of these things that I wanted to see come out of the vineyard that I planted, the people that I have chosen for myself. I expected there to be beautiful things coming out of that, and instead there was just death, just awful things. So when Jesus says vineyard, this is what the religious leaders of the day would have heard. The vineyard is a very strong analogy that we read throughout scriptures. 
So moving to this first son. He goes to the first son and he says, I'd like you to go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I don't want to. How many of you have been there? How many of us have been there? Everybody better raise your hand right now. Thank you. Well, you don't have to thank Brian, but everybody doesn't have to actually raise your hand. Because you know what? Here's the truth of the situation. We are all in the, we are all in the place of the first son. Prior to our relationship with Christ, we are all sitting in the seat of the first son. Jesus is calling him or saying, I, I'm good, man. You know what? This afternoon, I've got I've to do these other things, you know, and, um, and I'm, I'm fine. I, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Every person in all of history has been in the place of the first son. And yet, if we read what, the, what happens with the son, it's really beautiful. And there's something deeper here as well. He says in verse 29, he answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Now, we read that like, oh, well, I changed my mind. Cool. I, I, I thought I was going to have Mexican food, and yet I decided I changed my mind, and now I want to go have Thai food. That's not what this verse is saying at all. If you actually look at the verse, this, this word that he says changed his mind is a word you might have heard of in the church. It says it's, he repented. He didn't just decide that he was going to follow. He repented. He turned away from his old ways and he turned back to his father and said, hey, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I didn't say, I'm sorry I didn't go when you asked the first time, but my, my heart has changed and I'm going to go now. For all of us who have a relationship with the Lord, that's, that's exactly what happens in our life. God requires us to repent, to turn from our old ways, and to turn back to him. It, this is a beautiful picture of our relationship with the Lord. Why is that? Because the man did not go to the father and say, I want to work in your yard. I want to go work in your vineyard. That's not what happened at all. This is, this is Jesus, God himself, going to us as people who are saying no to him, sending his son to die for us, and then calling us into a relationship with him. He does the work first. He does all of the work. Without the calling, there is no relationship with the Lord. Without God's work for us in redeeming, restoring, working in our hearts, there's no, there is no us deciding to go to the vineyard. Left on our own, we never choose to go work in the vineyard. And yet, that's what God does for us. And so we find ourselves here with the Son. And we can all hopefully relate to the Son. So let's move to the second son. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. That's verse 30. I'm going to say that we probably have all been the second son too. We're in a relationship with the Lord. We have, we are the sons and daughters of, of God. And, and God says, hey, go, go do something. Be something. And we say, uh, yeah, sure, God. I, I will do that, 100%. And so we put on the trappings of church. We put our Christian hats on and we carry our Bible flag and we wear our nice clothes and we show up on Sunday morning and we, we work in the kids' ministry and we lead worship. And we lead a small group, and we put all of our Facebook, everything is our Instagram, our TikToks are all Bible-related. In our office at church, we have faith up on the wall. We have all of the trappings. If people looked at us from the outside, 
they would think that we were obediently following God because he said, go, and we said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. And so we put on all of these things to make ourselves think, make others think that we are a follower of Christ. And yet at the core of it, when he has called, we have not responded. He said, go, we said, okay, I'll go. And then we walked the other way. I know that I personally uh, can really relate to this because most of my early life was this. I mean, I grew up in a church home. I knew all of the words to say. I knew all of the things about the Bible. I taught a kid's Sunday school class. Man, I had all of the right answers. If you asked me a question about the Bible, I could argue it until, until we both just decided to, to forget it because it was just it was ridiculous. I knew I traveled around the world singing and playing in Christian groups and talking to people across five different continents about all the awesome things that God is. I knew all of the things that, that God, I had said, hey, uh, you know, I'll go, I'll go. And yet in, in the very core of who I was, I had missed the entirety of the relationship with the Lord that God was actually calling me to. I did the things, but I didn't have the power, the relationship with God that I knew, I just knew I was missing it. I was missing it. And I missed it for the majority of my life. I look back on those days and I, I, I am grateful that, that God preserved me through that time. I'm grateful that I was allowed, that I knew all of those things so that when I experienced a real relationship with the Lord, I had that background to be able to plug into. We live in a society today, and I don't, want to, I don't like to make gross generalizations, but truthfully, we live in a society where it's so easy to look like something. If you're Instagram and you're TikTok and you're Facebook and all of those things, all of, if they, they all can look like something that you're not. It's, it's very interesting to me because um, the, the younger generations, the millennials and younger, are... are pushing back against this entire notion of, of fake because you know why? They know what's not real. They've spent their entire lives looking at fake Instagram accounts of people who are smiling and happy and yet inside they're dying and they're pushing back. Saying, Wait, I want something real. I want something deeper than that. And so going back to my buddy Barry over here, if, if, you know, he signed his NIL deal, he signed his letter of intent to go play football, and yet how many snaps has Barry taken? That would be zero. He's a, y'all, he's a stuffed animal. How many push-ups has Barry done preparing for this? How many wind sprints? How many times has he woken up in August in order to get to his two-a-days and he sweated his face off in the heat of the Florida summer in order to prepare for the game? How many has he done? None. He's a bear. Just because he is dressed up in a uniform of a football player does not mean that he is a football player. Right? That may seem like a kind of a silly analogy. But the truth is, as we look at our world today and we look across the church in America, we see an epidemic problem with pastors leaving because they have not been doing the relational work with Jesus and they fall aside. 
Barna did a study in 2014, and they said that 3,500 people leave the church every day. 1.2 million people would leave the church in the next year. And Josh questioned me on that this morning. Well, that just seems like way too many people. And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so I'm not going to tell you where all this, you can look it up if you want to see the study. But the truth is, there is an enormous exodus from the church happening today because people are sick and tired of going through the motions for something that does not make any difference in their life. People are tired of coming and sitting and listening to people talk and watching an awesome band play and going home and their life has not changed. People have understood that being in the church does not mean that you're in a relationship with the creator of the universe. In that study, they asked eight, 14 to 33-year-olds how many of them would say that church is important to them. And 80% of them said it was not important at all. 80% of millennials are saying church is not important to them. Why? Because they've spent their entire lives learning that what you see on the outside does not mean that is what is on the inside. So we go back to these people that we read about in this 2,000-year-old book, and we see that Jesus was dealing with the same problem in the religious leaders of the day. You see, the religious leaders of the day had the most beautiful robes on. They had all of the actions They knew all of the rules, all of the laws. They did the right things. And yet they missed when John came calling in the desert. They missed it. They should have been looking for the Messiah and they missed it because they were so wrapped up in their political power. They were so wrapped up in control. They were so wrapped up in their pride. They had become completely self-sufficient on their own stuff, and they missed it. I don't want to be those people. I hope that you don't want to be those people. I hope you don't want to go through your life with with nice Facebook posts about how Jesus loves you and not understand how much Jesus loves you. I hope that you're not okay. I just, I hope that you're not okay. I hope that you hear the burden of my heart. I hope you're not okay with just being okay. You can follow Jesus on Facebook, but if you're not following him, it means nothing. It's worthless. And so what does it mean for us to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to get it? What does it mean to engage in a real relationship with the Lord? Well, he says right at the end here in verse verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. So he, he references John. So what, who the heck is John and why, does, why is he referencing him here? John was a, a cousin of Jesus. He lived in the desert. He wore the camel skin. He ate, lo- ate locusts and wild honey. Super weird dude. Probably fit right in in Portland. Maybe not in Orlando. But, you know, like he was, he was a weirdo. But what did he say? He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? Repent. Why does that sound familiar? Oh, we just talked about it just a few minutes ago. Remember that first son? What did he do? He repented. He realized my heart was not in the right place, and I said no, and so I repented. Repent. So John is saying, repent. Turn away from the way you've been living and turn to the creator God. 
And then when Jesus, it's such a beautiful picture, when Jesus is walking along and John sees him, man, can you imagine, can you imagine being John? You've been preaching the kingdom of God is at hand and there's someone that's coming that I'm not even going to be able to tie their shoes. And then all of a sudden, here's Jesus and he shows up. And John is just, can you imagine? I, I have seen the Messiah. I have seen the Messiah. John preached, repent, kingdom is here, and look to Jesus. Very simple message, right? We don't have the theology of John the Baptist in in 12 books here. It's very simple. Repent, turn away from your old ways, turn to Jesus, and when you see him, you better run to him. You better run to him. That's what he said. It's a pretty big contrast between camel skin, locusts, wild honey, and fancy priestly robes. Big contrast. One of them got it, one of them didn't. But if you looked at them from the outside, you say, which one got it? Well, clearly the guy with the, with the long train and the robes and stuff, right? No, it was John. And so that begs the question, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to go work in the vineyard like God is calling us to do, what does that really look like? What does that mean for us as believers? Because Piper calls this our, our kind of our current religion. Uh, what, what did he say? Um, one-step Calvinism. People hear this this idea of once saved, always saved, and they just get stuck there, right? Uh, because they, they hear it, and then nothing goes beyond that. Um, that it's, a, it's, a very, it's a problem because we think that if we have experienced a relationship with God, that, that we are forgiven of all our sins. And guess what? Yes, 100% yes. We can rest in the fact that if we know God, we have experienced his forgiveness and we have a relationship with him. We have been forgiven of all of our sins. He has cleansed us from our unrighteousness, and, and that's it. The, the story is done. We have that because of who God is. But if we begin to look into the words of Jesus, we see something uh, that's a little bit scary because um, it goes quite a bit beyond that. John chapter 15, verse 14 says, You are my friends if you do what I command. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, anyone know that one? Keep my commands. Luke said, uh, in Luke we read that Jesus said, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. James, the brother of Jesus, right? He says, my friends, what good is it to say that you have faith when you don't do anything to show you really have faith? Can this kind of faith save you? That's the contemporary English version. That's like kind of a paraphrase. But I just want to read that again. What good is it to you to say you have faith when you don't do anything to show you really do have faith? Can this kind of faith save you? Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible as we read calls us into more than just a passive relationship with God. He calls us into something a lot more than just like be saved, walk in aisle, take your communion, everything's good, right? We, if we stop there, we are missing out on the beauty of the relationship that we could have with Jesus. It goes so much deeper than just knowing loving salvation. That's, that's, that's such a shallow faith, and it's what I experienced for an enormous part of my life that I just, I, I, I grieve where I missed. 
because Jesus over and over calls us into a walking, abiding relationship with him, daily walking step in step with Jesus. Do what I say, do what I command, do what I, and, and even at the end when Jesus was getting ready to leave, he's with his disciples and in Matthew 28, he says, go, go into all the world, teaching them to do what? Everything I commanded. He did not say, go into all the world, preach, get them saved, and get back home. This may seem like heresy. I know, look, it is hard for me even because, look, it, it may scream of legalism to you, and it's not because it's not about earning anything. It's not about our ability to earn favor with God. It's about the incredible grace and mercy of God that he would choose to call us into anything. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The yoke is a, a double analogy here. When he says, take my yoke upon you, yes, he's talking about being yoked like, like farm animals would. They would yoke them together so that they could pull together. But also, as we've talked about, I know in the past, that the, these same religious leaders would have their rules and regulations around their neck in a little scroll. And the holier the, 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 holier the leader, the longer their scroll was. And that scroll was called their yoke. So when a, when a disciple would come to this rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to be your, your disciple, he would say, okay, that's fine. Here, here's my yoke. You need to learn to do all of these things. And Jesus says, come to me. I know you've been carrying this heavy weight, this list of rules and regulations that you think you need to live by in order to have a relationship with him. Take my yoke on you. It's easy. It's easy. Follow me. Follow me. Learn from me, rest in me, delight in me, love me, know me, walk in my ways. My people together, come together and learn from me so that you can experience rest. If you've been carrying this heavy weight of thinking, I need to do X so that God will love me, let me tell you what, I, I can free you of that burden today because Jesus is not expecting you to do anything to prove your love for him in order to gain anything from him. He has already done it all and he's just asking you to step into an abiding, loving relationship with him. Not so that he will love you, but because he has loved you. Do you see the difference? Huge, huge difference. Romans, Paul tells us in Romans, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It's Romans chapter 12, if you want to look it up later. Paul is urging us daily to renew our minds, to renew our minds. All of these are active things that we're doing in order to walk more closely in step with Jesus. There's a quote that's going to go up on the screen here from C.S. Lewis. He's, he's probably my favorite Christian author. Um, this is from Mere Christianity. It says, 
Handing everything over to Christ does not, of course, mean that you stop trying. To trust him means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. We don't do these things in order to earn. We do these things because we've already been given so much in Jesus. The bottom line is that when God changes our heart, when we have a relationship with him, when we have experienced the grace of God, it should change us. And that should be visible to the people that we come in contact with all the time. But more so, it should be reflected in our hearts. We should take ourselves off the throne and put Jesus on the throne so that we can follow him. Uh, to this end, we are going to, after Easter, start a couple of uh, discipleship groups. Uh, and I, I know discipleship is not a real word, but that's okay. We'll, maybe we'll call it apprentice groups. But for, for men and women to be able to step into relationship with other men and women, to learn to walk closer, closer with Jesus. Um, they, they'll, we'll, we'll try to have a couple throughout the week. But it's an opportunity for us to be able to know, like, what does it mean? Because it's easy to say, I want to, be a, I want to be an apprentice of Jesus, but what the heck does that mean? We don't really do apprenticeships much anymore. So be, be able to walk together as a church, go deeper in our relationship with the Lord. That's so, so important. And finally, in John chapter 15, Jesus references that vineyard again, the vine again, and a really beautiful passage, John 15, 1 through 4, it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. It should be the goal of our lives to step closely into a vital, living, thriving relationship with God. Do you understand what he has given you? I've been, I've been meditating on the love that God has for me um, for the last couple of months. I just can't, I can't get past it. I can't get past when I begin to think about how Jesus loves me and, and what God has done for me. It stops me in my tracks every time. I just can't believe it. I hope that you understand that love. I hope that you know that Jesus loves you so much. And if you are in the place of the first son, if you're before you have repented, let me tell you something, man. Maybe you're afraid of coming back to God and saying, I, you don't understand what I've done. I, 
He is waiting with open arms. That, that past, this whole parable is just a mirror of the prodigal son. And at the end of this prodigal son story where the prodigal son walks away and he decides to come back to his father, we see the, the, the father running out to, see, to get his son. Waiting, he's been waiting this whole time. I'm telling you right now, if you have been away from the Lord and you've been saying, no, 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 I don't want to go, I don't want to go, man, he's waiting. He's just waiting with love, with his arms open for you to turn and say, I, I'm repenting, I'm changing, my, I'm changing my mind, I'm changing my heart, I'm coming back to you. And if you're the second son where you said you would go, and you're not going. You said you're a believer, but you're not really believing. Now is an opportunity to, to be like the first son, to repent. Offer to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know I said that, that I would follow you. I know I said that I would be your disciple. I know I said that I would do these things. And yeah, I'm not. Now, now is an opportunity for you to repent, to turn your heart back to the Lord. Say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't keep my word to you, and yet you always keep your word. And I think you'll find the same thing. Jesus, with his arms open, just waiting for his children to enter into a real relationship with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We know that you're a good father who loves us, and it's so hard for us to imagine that, Lord. And so as we come to you this morning, we ask, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would teach us what we need to hear from this passage, Lord, that if we are one of the two sons right now, Lord, that you would move us to a deeper relationship with you, that you would call us into repentance, Lord, that we would come before you and repent where we have failed you, Lord, and ask that you would change our hearts so that we can be more aligned with you, God. And that as we go, as we follow you, Lord, that our actions would live up to who we say we are, that we would do the things that you're calling us to do so that other people would come to know you. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he, meaning Jesus, was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we enter into a time of communion, we see the bread and we remember the Lord's words it was his body that was broken for us. We see the cup. We remember the Lord's words that this was the cup of the new covenant. His blood poured out for our forgiveness. And so we call this communion. But it's about communing. This is a special time of being together as the people of God in community, but also with the Lord himself. That in this very special way, he is present with us. And so we do this in remembrance of him that this is our salvation. Because one son says no, but then has a change of heart. He repents. And what is it that leads us to repentance? Romans 5 says it's the kindness of God. That we see the kindness of God. 
that he would send his own son to die for us, to bring us back into communion with him. And so would you examine your heart, believer, this is for you? Search your heart, confess your sin, and confess him to be mighty to save. This was the cost of our salvation, so we proclaim it, we celebrate it, and we'll do that until he comes back again. There are elements up front and in the aisles. When you are ready, take, eat, and drink. Proclaim the Lord's death. Commune.